0: What I want to do now is invite you, grab your Bible, pledge your Bible, open with me to Romans chapter 8. If you don't have a Bible or you forgot your Bible, just raise your hand. Ushers are coming now. We'd love for you to have your own Bible in your own hands this morning. We've got an amazing passage we're gonna study this morning. Here's what I want you to know. The very best sermon I've heard in a long time on the topic of suffering was preached seven days ago right here in our sanctuary, Pastor Christopher preached an incredible sermon on suffering. And the thing I want you to know is that I, true confessions, I was not in the room to hear it, okay? And I want to tell you the story of what happened to me, because it has to do with suffering, all right? It was Sunday morning last week, I got up, I had every intention of coming to church, and I went outside in the morning to take my garbage and recycling bins out to the street And I was walking out towards the street, and I smelled smoke. So I turned to look over at my neighbor's house to see if my neighbor was burning a fire on an 80-degree day in October. And I took my eyes off of where I was walking, and we have a spot in our driveway where the concrete is lifted about two inches. And I was wearing flip-flops, and I took a full swing, and I toe-punted... The concrete, and my toe lost that little battle with the concrete. I kicked the concrete so hard that I split my toe open in the front. I lifted the toenail up off of my toe. Yeah, good morning. Do you have a full stomach? Okay, good morning. Just a little wake up. Broke my toe. I threw recycling all over my driveway, and here's what happened. River West, I have a very queasy stomach, all right? Do you? Good morning. Okay, I I looked down. There's blood already shooting out of my toe, and I didn't feel pain. The very first thing I thought was... I'm going down, like I'm going to faint, I'm going to faint, so I run inside, I lay down on the couch, and you know what happened? I just started groaning, oh, oh my gosh, and Christopher's online preaching, all creation is groaning, and believers are groaning, and Pastor Adam is home groaning, I was like groaning, Kathy came over, and she was like trying to wrap my foot up, and I'm like Queasy, I'm like groaning. She probably is like, "This is so pathetic, dude." You know, she's probably like, "One of us has cancer, okay? The other one has a boo boo. One of us has has a boo boo." She's wrapping my toe, but then I went in I listened to I listened to Christopher's sermon, and it was a masterpiece about the reality of suffering and how, as Christians, we actually we actually have resources for our suffering. And Christopher talked about this reassurance that we have, this hope that we look forward to. And I thought, this sermon is so perfect for me right now, but I know it's perfect for so many of you. And I was sitting there listening to the sermon that I was thinking about this morning, and I realized that truth, though, of the reality of suffering, it actually, if you start to think about it, it kind of creates a problem for the Christian. Here's what I mean. It brings... Into full, sort of, full focus, a conundrum we have. And the conundrum is this How does the reality of suffering in our world fit with the reality of a God who is sovereign? How does that work? If God is sovereign, if God is totally in control, which is the simple definition of sovereignty, God is in control, God has a plan. Nothing can stop God's plan, and we believe that. But if that's true, friends, how does that fit though with suffering that is a reality? I mean, Christopher was right. And the text we're going to look at this morning, Paul's going to develop this kind of discussion. And actually, some of you know because you've been reading ahead, Paul's, before he makes things better, he's actually going to make things even slightly more complicated because Paul's going to say in one of the most famous verses in the book of Romans that God actually takes even suffering and he uses it in your life to accomplish his purposes, right? I don't even have to say the verse cuz so many of you know it. That for those who love God, all things what they work together for good. So we want to talk about that a little bit this morning. What I want to do is I want to read to you the passage, just five verses. And then we're going to take a little bit of time and talk about this idea of like God's sovereignty and then suffering. How does this work? Let's start by reading the text. Here's what Paul says next. Romans 8, verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit, He helps us in our weakness... For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who were called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Wow. What a passage. So much going on in that verse. It's really funny. Um, I always prepare the sermon schedule like several months in advance So I I map out the schedule, and one of the challenges is I try to figure out, well, how long will it take to preach each of these little sections? And when I came to this, I'm like, it's five verses, right? Five little short verses. There's no way I'll have a problem preaching this in one sermon. And now I'm standing up here going, I have to preach this in one sermon? There's a lot going on in this passage, okay? But here's what I want to say to you. It's time to have a conversation in our church about the doctrine of God's sovereignty, We need to talk about this and we're going to talk about it today. And you say, well, why do you say that pastor? Well, one of the reasons I say that we need to talk about sovereignty is that it's literally in every single verse we just read either explicitly or implicitly it's there. There's the obvious stuff. Did you see the word predestination twice? That is a big Bible word predestination. You know, that word's in the Bible. Predestination, foreknowledge. These are big words about a sovereign God. And then we have Romans 8, where Paul says God is so sovereign that he can take all the things that happen to you, even the hard stuff, and he can work them together for good, for his divine purpose. And even that stuff about prayer, did you see in verses 26 and 27 where Paul's talking about the spirit and prayer? What he's really talking about that there is, how can you know that you can pray according to the sovereign will of God? Paul's gonna say you need the Holy Spirit to do that. So the whole thing is about sovereignty. And then what's gonna happen is, not this next Sunday, but the following Sunday, we're gonna start preaching chapters nine through 11, and that whole section has God's sovereignty in the background. So we got to talk about this. And if I were you, I would be thinking, I want to know what my pastor thinks about sovereignty. This is a big doctrine. Like, what does the church believe about this? I would want to know that. I hope you want to know that. The other thing that's true is, I've discovered over the years when I talk to Christians that there's a lot of confusion about sovereignty. People are confused about it. It's sort of a shocking doctrine, you know? I've talked to people who when 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 the topic of predestination comes up, people go, "We don't actually believe that, do we?" It's almost like it's like a swear word in the Christian life. Predestination? Do we believe that? Well, it's the word is actually in the Bible. Did you see it? It was there two times. Pre- I remember the first time I was 19-year-old college kid when someone explained predestination to me, and I thought, we don't actually believe this, do we? I was at Willamette University, and... Willamette allowed students to go to the Bible college in town called Corbin College and they would allow them to go take theology classes there. Willamette, they would outsource theology to the Bible college, which was probably a good decision. So I'm sitting in this Bible college with two of my best friends and the, and the teacher gets up there. It's a class on Pauline theology and he starts teaching about predestination and sovereignty and all the kids in the Bible college were like, yeah, totally. And then me and my two heathen friends from Willamette were like, what are you talking about? You know, we're like struggling with this, but it's, it's right here in the Bible. And the question is, what do you think about the sovereignty of God? Like, have you wrestled with it? Here's the thing you have a view about it. That's not the question. You don't have to be a pastor to think about whether you're a banker or a baker or a pastor or a teacher or or you are a stay-at-home parent. You're a theologian. You're thinking about this all the time. And your view of God's sovereignty is dictating the way you understand life. And so let's talk about it. Let's talk about it a little bit. Paul divides his comments in this paragraph into two categories things that we know and things that we don't know do you see that there he says in the beginning of verse 28 look at that he says we know that for those who love God and then he starts talking about all these things that we know so there's a bunch of stuff we know and then but back in verse 26 Paul says and there's one thing we don't know So what I want to do is I want to, what I want to show you today, this is kind of my sermon outline. There's one thing that we don't know, and there's actually six things we do know, okay? Here's what we don't know. When it comes to suffering and the sovereignty of God, we don't know how to pray sometimes. That's what we don't know. We look at verse 26, the weakness that Paul mentions there. Do you see that? Likewise, the spirit helps us in our weakness. What's that weakness? Well, he goes on and he describes it. And he says, the weakness is ignorance as to what should be the proper content of prayer. He says, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. That's what we don't know. And then in verse 27, Paul says, and that's why God gives us the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit comes in and intercedes for us according to the will of God. You see that at the end of verse 27? So what's happening here is the weakness of believers is that we often, we don't have an adequate grasp of God's sovereign will when we pray because we're finite and we're fallible and we can't always perceive fully what God is doing and what God desires. And that's why the gift of the Holy Spirit is such a great gift. Because the Holy Spirit knows exactly how to pray, friends. He is the sovereign spirit of God. And he's been given to you. Sometimes I get up, when I get up in the morning to have my quiet time, I get my cup of coffee, I pull out my Bible, and I sit down, and I realize, I don't know what to pray for right now. There's a lot going on, you know? I'm not sure. I don't know. Does that ever happen to you? Like, you ever sit there and go, I don't know what to pray for, especially when it comes to the hard stuff. Like, Lord, should I pray that you take this away? But what if that's not your will to take it away right now? Should I pray that things get easier in my life? But I'm not totally sure that's your sovereign will. So then I'm like, I don't know what to pray for, which is ironic because no one knows me better than me, right? I mean, if there's anyone who knows me, it's me. I know what I need, I know what I'm lacking in my life, I know what's missing, I know what would make me happy. Or do I? Do I? And so I think what's actually happening in this verse is Paul saying, sometimes when hardship comes in, that's the moment when, see, you never struggle with how to pray for your friend or your neighbor or someone you love. Where you struggle the most is, God, I don't know what to pray for me right now, especially with the hard stuff. And Paul says, this is why God is so good. This is why sovereignty is such a good news. He gives you his Holy Spirit and you don't have to worry about it anymore. Can I tell you something? I want you to really listen to what I'm about to say to you. Not knowing what to pray is never an excuse not to pray. Never. In fact, have you ever thought about this? Not knowing what to pray, when you get to that moment, that might end up being the most intimate moment of prayer you have in your entire week. Because you sit down, things are hard. Is there something hard happening in your life right now? And you just, I don't know what to pray. You know what you do in that moment? You just say, Spirit, I believe you're with me right now. I'm just gonna, maybe just pray the Lord's prayer. Your will be done. I don't even know exactly what, but I know this. Your Holy Spirit He's, he's in me, and it's very intimate. He's groaning with me. He's saying things that I can't even discern. He's interceding on my behalf, praying to you, Father. And I, can, I know for a fact that he's praying in exact accordance with your will because he's the spirit of the living God. Amen? And you have that Holy Spirit in you. So friends, be encouraged. The sovereignty of God is not something to be afraid of. The sovereignty of God is an incredible, incredible gift. All right? So there's one thing we don't know. But here's the thing. There are a lot of things that we do know. There's a lot of things we know. And Paul's going to start talking about them in verse 26. So um, what I want to say is uh, the things that I'm, gonna, I'm about to talk about that Paul says we know, they are very surprising things. Big words, over the next 15, 20 minutes, I need you to just think really deeply with me, okay? Because when the Bible says that there's uh, something we don't know, we should accept that and say humbly, like, there's things I don't know. There are mysteries that have not been revealed to me. But when the Bible says there's things that we know for a fact, there's nothing humble anymore about saying, well, I'm not sure about this. Never say that about something where Paul says, we actually know this. Like we know for a fact. And Paul's gonna say, there's six things here that we know, all right? And the first one is really easy. Verse 28. Will you just look at it with me? Verse 28. And uh, I'm gonna pull up my sermon here in a different, my, my iPad froze. Okay, here we go. Verse 28, Paul says, we know that for those who love God, all things work together. For good. We know this, all right? We know for those who love God, all things work together for good. This is not only the most quoted verse in the Bible, it's also the most misquoted verse in the Bible, okay? This, if there's a verse in the Bible that we lift out of context and we quote to somebody else, it's this verse, all right? And pro- the problem with that is, we often also, we, we misinterpret it a lot. We lift it out of context. And here's, here's how a lot of people use this verse. They use it to say, things are hard, I know, but don't worry. Things are gonna get better for you, I promise you. Like all that, all that tough stuff, eventually it's gonna become good in your life. But the problem is, that's actually not what this verse is saying. This verse is not promising you a happy ending to everything in your life right now that's painful. It's not saying that. And so what I want to do this morning to help you, and if you want to write these down, I'm going to give you, I'm going to make four sort of clarifying uh, comments about this verse. Four clarifying observations. I'm going to do this pretty quickly. Here's the first sort of observation. Paul does not say in this verse that all things are intrinsically good. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying that everything about your life is good in and of itself. Sickness is not good. Suffering is not good. Cancer is not good. Divorce is brutal and heartbreaking. A broken heart is painful. Loneliness is lonely. Addiction feels like a prison. Let's not harm our friends by minimizing what they're going through. Let's not do that. It's not helpful. Grief is not joy. Hatred is not love. Death is not life. The world is filled with brokenness and evil. And if there's anyone on the planet who should be willing to sit with someone when they're going through something painful, it's Christians, right? You of all people, when you, when you are in a f- friendship with someone who's hurting, don't minimize the hurt, okay? Just sit with them and just let suffering be suffering. Amen? Sometimes life is just really, really hard. One of the greatest things that's happened to Kathy and I in our church family is how wisely those of you who know us, you have responded to what we're going through not minimizing, not patronizing, not throwing bible verses at us, just like man, this is really really hard. I'm so sorry. This is hard. But this text is teaching, so it's not saying that all those things are good in themselves. What it's saying is God is sovereign. And God, I don't know how he does it, but he takes all these little things that happen. Sometimes they're good and but sometimes they're not good. They're painful. They're unexpected they're heartbreaking, and he can take those things and somehow he can weave them into a tapestry of accomplishing his purposes. And this is, this is amazing. The sovereignty of God is not bad news for you. It's extremely good news. And God even does this with the painful stuff. I love this quote from Malcolm Muggeridge. Malcolm Muggeridge was a British journalist Here's what he wrote near the end of his life. I think I've got this. He said, contrary to what, I, what might be expected, I look back on experiences that at the time seemed especially desolating and painful with particular satisfaction. Indeed, I can say with complete truthfulness that everything I've learned in my 75 years in this world, everything that has truly enhanced and enlightened my existence has been through the affliction and not to the happiness, whether pursued or attained. Isn't that true? Real quick, have you ever heard anybody say, all the most important stuff I learned in my life, I learned when I was really happy and everything was easy. <laughs> People don't say that. I've never heard anyone say that. People are like, the most important stuff I learned happened to me when I was just going through so much hardship. Why is that? I don't know. It's like, that's just one of the ways God teaches us. Malcolm goes on. In other words, if by means of, if it, if it were ever to be possible to eliminate affliction from our earthly existence by means of some drug or other medical mumbo jumbo, the result would not, to be make, would not be to make life delectable, but to make it too banal or trivial to be endurable. This, of course, is what the cross of Christ signifies. And it is the cross more than anything else that has called me inexorably to Christ. It's a great quote. Malcolm says, Are you going through something hard? Yes. Right now, it's terrible. Let it be that. But there could come a day when you look back and go, Oh my gosh, the things that I learned, the things that God did in my life through that hardship, it's unbelievable. Here's the second thing I want to say about Romans 8, 28. This promise is not true for everyone. I need you to hear what I'm about to say to you. This is absolutely critical. This verse is not true for every person. In fact, I'm going to put it back up and show you there are two things that have to be true about you In order for Romans 28 to apply to your life. You see it? The first one is. You love God. See that? And then there's the second one. You've been called according to his purpose. Okay? Those two things have to be true. In order for Romans 8.28. To apply to you. And that isn't two groups of people. So. There's, Paul says, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. To those who have been called according to his purpose, both of those statements describe the same person. So it's not like there's, there's people who love God, and all things work together for good for them, and then there's people who have been called according to his purpose, but they don't love God, and all things work together for their good. Both of these statements are about the same person, and I think there's a reason why Paul made both of them. Okay? And here's what it is. This is so helpful. First of all, he wants to know, you, you need to know, you need to like, have this sense, like, I actually really love God. But if Paul stopped there, well, what would happen to you is you'd go... Well, wow, that means this massive promise is being laid on the foundation of my fickle heart and whether I love God or not. It's like, that's a lot of pressure to put on me. So then Paul says, yeah, but there's another thing that's true and it has more to do with God and his sovereignty. He's actually called you according to his purposes. And that means that for people who don't love God, And for people who have not been called by God according to his purpose, that means that this kind of a verse is, it's not true. You know, in fact, this sounds kind of crazy, but actually Satan, so God uses even bad things to bring about good. Did you know that Satan uses good things to bring about evil purposes in this world? That's why he loves it when People are comfortable and happy and killing it and successful. When I'm comfortable and happy and killing it and successful, you know what happens? I continue to believe the lie that I don't need God, (laughs) right? But for those who do love God, if I go through a season of success, great, God's going to use that. And if I go through a season of heartbreak, God's going to use that too. This is amazing. Here's a third sort of observation Clarifying comment. God did not give us this verse to quote to other people. Okay, stop doing that. Stop doing that. He gave you this verse to cling to yourself. God gave you this verse so that you will cling to your faith in absolute desperation when it hits the fan in your life. That's why he gave you this verse. If you've never had to cling to Romans 8.28 for your very soul, don't quote it to anybody else. Don't do that. It's not helpful. And here's the fourth one. This verse will not make sense to you if you've been hijacked by a Western secular definition of good. Which is our problem. Right? If good means healthy, then this verse is not true. Because I know a lot of Christians who live with chronic pain, chronic disease, and they'll probably live with it for the rest of their lives. If this verse means wealthy, if good, excuse me, if good means wealthy, which it often means in our culture, then this verse is not true. Because the vast majority of Christians historically and globally right now live in abject poverty, right? If good means comfortable, or successful, or admired, then this verse is not true. Because a lot of times we're uncomfortable, we're not successful, we're not admired, right? We have such, in our Western American culture, we have such a myopic definition of good. It's like, I always need to be comfortable. If I'm ever uncomfortable, fix it immediately, right? Instant gratification. If there's anything wrong, We gotta fix it immediately. Do you know how much harm we do to our children when we never let them experience anything painful, right? Parents, do you feel me? It's really bad when we never let our kids go through anything hard. Have you ever been with young parents when their kid like runs into the room and falls and doesn't really hurt themselves. And then they just start crying, looking around the room to see which parent will pick them up and give some attention, right? You know, we train our kids to do that. I love it when your kid like falls down and starts crying and you just ignore them completely. It's a beautiful thing to do. (laughs) Don't do that. Don't do that. But that, but our culture is like alleviate any discomfort, alleviate immediately any pain anything that is painful or dis- or uncomfortable is there's got to be something wrong fix it immediately and Paul says the reality is following Jesus sometimes will be uncomfortable and there will be suffering and there will be hardship okay so what is the biblical vision then of the good that God will bring About in your life by means of every circumstance, whether good or painful, what is it? Well, verse 29 has the answer. Will you look at it with me? Here's what Paul says next. He says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. There it is right there. Now, for a minute, just ignore the words foreknew and predestined. I'm going to come back to those in just a minute, okay? So ignore that. That right there is God's definition of what's good. God has a plan for your life. And you know what the plan is? He's going to transform you. His eternal, sovereign purpose for all of history is summarized in that statement. He's trying to take christians and conform us into the image of jesus christ this is amazing this is like astounding this is god's ultimate ultimate definition of good it's so much better than comfortable retirement it's so much better than a successful career It's so much better than six-pack abs, okay? Check, God, no, right? Right, all that stuff, who cares? It's all gonna fade. Paul says, no, there's there's, there's a good that God's working and it's eternal. He wants to transform you so that you look more and more and more like his son, Jesus. That is amazing. Another way to say this is, God's before the ages plan. So that's where we're gonna talk about foreknowledge and predestination. Go back into the midst of eternity. God created a plan and that plan was to create a Christ-shaped family, a renewed humanity modeled on his son, Jesus. And that is beautiful. And so it's like the, the imagery that Paul uses there with the word conformed, it's almost like God's pouring you into a form. You know what a form is? It's like it's a, it's a, a, a hard exterior and soft things get poured into it and then it shapes you. This is, God, this is what God's doing in your life. And he's using all kinds of stuff, really great stuff and also really hard stuff. And then he's just like, I'm just pouring you and the, and the end result is the form is Jesus Christ. And that's your, that is, I promise you, that is your eternal destiny. And friends, this is such great news. So who can do this? What kind of a God could actually pull this off? What kind of a God could take all kinds of circumstances? And they never thwart his plan. Well, it's the God of verses twenty. 29 and 30. So now I want to read these verses again, and we're going to deal with all these big words, okay? We got to talk about it. You want me to talk about it. Here's what he says. For those, verse 29, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified... He also glorified. So you have these five words. Just think about them or look at them in your Bible. Forenew, so there's foreknowledge, predestined, okay, called, justified, and glorified. And Paul says, what I'm trying to do, here's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to get you now up into eternity to see creation from God's eternal perspective. And these are the five words that Paul uses to do that. They've been called the golden chain of redemption. I I love this little picture. Do you see the five words there? Forenew, predestined, called, justified, glorified, I don't want to get too granular yet. I don't want to go into each word because I, I, what I want you to see is the big, the big picture. I like the idea of a golden chain. It's this idea of once one of those starts, the foreno- anyone who is foreknown or any community, they're also predestined, called, justified, glorified. Every, it's like that, hap- that, that is a complete chain. There's a 100% graduation rate all right? No dropouts, okay? Once you're foreknown, you're predestined, then you're called justified, glorified. Paul says, see this from God's perspective. The first two words take us back into eternity past, before creation. There's God. He hasn't even created yet. What's he doing? He has perfect divine foreknowledge, and he has perfect determination. He knows what's best. He knows what to do the last word, glorified, takes us into eternity future. That's where we're headed, glorification, where we'll get our, we'll get our new resurrection bodies. We'll be, we'll be like Christ. The two words in the middle, they're called and justified. That's right now. I've been called. I've been justified. Paul says, take great comfort from this. Right? Only God, th- this is the kind of God that can take every circumstance and use it for your good. But now what I want to do. Because I know a lot of people are, are, are wondering. Predestination. Gosh. What, what does that word mean? It sounds like what it means is that God determines. Before creation. He, he predetermined everything that would come to pass in my life. Like even my salvation. God determines that's what the word means, to predetermine. It means to preordain. So from the beginning, before he even creates, he, he chooses what will happen to you. And that is what the word means. And a lot of Christians hear that and they go, well, wait a minute, what about my free will, right? There's a struggle there. And so a lot of Christians, they see in that word foreknowledge, foreknew, that's why they see an, a, a kind of an attractive option. And I want to explain it to you. And then I'm going to tell you ultimately why I don't take this view. But here's what a lot of Christians say they say that God, the foreknowledge part is that God, he foresaw everyone who would believe in him. And then, based on, so like, take for you, for example, based on your future belief, he foresaw that perfectly. And based on your decision to have faith, he predestined you and everything that would happen to you. And you go, so basically what that means is it, 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 it preserves my free choice, right? Because I'm the one choosing to have faith in God. And God's seeing that perfectly because he has divine foreknowledge. And then God says, okay, based on your faith, now I'm predestining you. There's problems with this view though. Okay, there's reasons why this is problematic, and I actually don't take this view. So the first problem is this. I want you to think really deeply about what I'm about to say to you. If God only predestines people to salvation because they are going to believe, that means that we are the ones who provide the ultimate decisive cause of our salvation because we're the ones doing the believing. It's, it's my decision to have faith that's the ultimate, final cause of my salvation. And you should have a lot of problems with that. You should be hearing that going, yeah, that doesn't sound right. Because that means I'm the one who ultimately is decisive over my salvation. But, but the Bible doesn't teach, the Bible teaches that God is the one who saves. It's, salvation is totally of the Lord, right? There's another problem with this. It fails to take into consideration the Old Testament background of that word know in foreknew, foreknowledge. That word know is, in the Old Testament, it's more than just knowing about something intellectually, right? In the Old Testament, when you know something, it's it's Intimate, it's close, there's a personal commitment, right? So, like Genesis 4 1, I'll put this up. You remember this verse where it says, Adam knew his wife Eve, and then she conceived a son. This isn't a sex ed class, okay? But that word no there is a lot more than just he knew about her intellectually. That never creates a baby, okay? All right, when it says Adam knew his wife Eve, it's talking about something close, intimate, personal. Or for example, here's here's a verse in Amos. Amos 3.2 says, you only have I known Israel of all the families of the earth when god knows even when he foreknows something it's almost like it's saying god decided before the foundations of the world to be deeply committed in love to one people and then he predestined them and so his foreknowledge is way more than just knowing what we're going to do it's a commitment it's 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 a decision to lock into us in love and sovereign grace it's a precious precious doctrine folks and it's the explanation what kind of a God could work like this in my life I'll, I'll close with an illustration about Kathy I've watched Kathy um, walk into our kitchen on nights where we, we don't have really have any food in the cupboard we don't, we don't, we're like what are we going to have for dinner there's nothing in there to eat and Kathy's like I'll figure something out okay and she, I, this is amazing. I don't know how she does this. She walks into the kitchen and she starts opening the cupboards and she starts pulling out all of the most random things out of my cupboard you can ever. So I, I walked in the one time there was a, a jar of capers, a can of sardines. Okay. Gnarly. And it's like four or five other ingredients. And I'm like, we're going to Baja Fresh, all right? I'm like, this is not happening. And then she's just like, go sit down. And then she just starts creating and there's flames flying across the kit. And she creates this masterpiece meal. And I'm like, how in the world did you do that with all of those? Some of those ingredients are just nasty, right? How did you do that? And that is just the tiniest little example of what our sovereign God can do with the ingredients of your life. Have you ever thought, man, this thing that's happening to me, it's like, what is the purpose of this, God? It's like a can of sardines. I don't know what you're going to do with this in my life. And it's painful. And I have to live with it right now. My heart is broken. And friends, if you don't think God is sovereign, There's absolutely no reason for you to believe that he can take even that thing and use it for his good purposes. This is why sovereignty is such good news, amen? And then God comes in like a master chef and he just starts taking the ingredients of your life and he's cooking right now using all that stuff in your life. Trust him, amen? Does it make it easy right now? No, it doesn't. It's not easy, I know. But you can have faith. God's doing something great. Will you pray with me and then we'll take communion together? Well, Father, we we want to believe these things today. Even the hard things, predestination, foreknowledge, calling, your sovereignty. They're big ideas, but you're a big God. And we love you and we trust you. And my goodness, Lord, I do not want to minimize the pain that's happening right now in this room. I know some of my friends are going through really, really hard things. And even wondering, how could God possibly use this for good? And so I pray, I pray this morning for folks who are really suffering, Lord. Would you meet them this morning as we sing, as we go to the table? We want to worship you, Father. More than anything, though, would you increase our faith, Lord God? Would we walk out of these doors today believing you are the sovereign, sovereign God of the universe? You have a plan to conform us into the image of your son, Jesus. And we're looking forward to that day. And so we praise you, Father. We pray these things together. In Jesus' name, everyone said...